Hello and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon and I'm here with my colleague Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team and we're here on this podcast to break down some of the interesting issues that we're seeing in the benefits compliance world, specifically as uh, that world relates to employers and their compliance efforts. Today, Suzanne, we're going to circle back. Um, We were distracted briefly with the Association Health Plan rules and the court ruling there, but we're going to get back to single-payer systems. Today, we are going to talk about four segments, we'll call them, of proposals being put out there by the Democrats relating to single-payer systems. Um, We're hoping that you can give us a little bit of insight into the terminology, the structure, the funding, the impact on providers, and some of these um, general outlines of each of these uh, segments. So can you give us a quick overview of the spectrum that we're looking at here? Yes, we're, we, we are talking about a spectrum from kind of least disruptive to most disruptive. And there are right now about eight Democratic proposals, and they range from expanding Medicaid to completely replacing the entire healthcare system with socialized medicine, only one national plan. So in between, you have um, options to expand Medicare, and you also have adding a public option into the the marketplace. And I think something that's important to remember as we look through these various proposals is that most countries that have some form of universal health care system rely on a multi-payer system. So they typically have private insurers playing some role in the equation. And I think that would be important going forward. Um, but let's talk about these. Yeah, so let's start with the least disruptive, and we'll go to the most disruptive. And when we say disruptive, we're referencing the current environment that we're in now. And just as a quick reminder, we've hit this on on past podcasts, but we are in an environment where the majority of Americans get their coverage in the through their employers. We call that the employer group insurance market. That market is quite stable. The general feedback from those that have employer group plans is that they're happy with them. And so when we say disruptive, we're talking about a potential disruption to that happiness, that access that uh, the majority of Americans have. So let's jump in with the least disruptive model here. Um, and we're going to call that Medicaid buy-in. Is that right, Suzanne? That's right. So one of them is actually called the State Public Option Act, and it allows residents that are not already eligible for Medicaid and who are not currently enrolled in other health insurance to buy into the state Medicaid plan. Now, just as a reminder, Medicaid is really a state-run program. You have Medicare federally run. Medicaid is run by both the state and it's funded by the federal government. Um, But this would allow individuals with incomes that are above the current state Medicaid eligibility level to um, be able to buy in through the marketplace, a Medicaid plan. And that plan would leverage the Medicaid provider network, Medicaid reimbursement rates for those providers, the whole Medicaid infrastructure and the individuals who are enrolled would receive Medicaid-like benefits. So if you can imagine, for example, going into the marketplace, you see that United has a gold plan, a silver plan, a bronze plan. Now you would also see a Medicaid plan along with that that you could enroll in. So uh, the concerns here are what will this do to the individual marketplace in the exchange? And, And that's unknown, and it would likely vary by state depending on where the sicker population is attracted into. So obviously, if more sicker individuals go into Medicaid, then the individual market would would benefit from that. Um, But the state is now going to be on the hook for a sicker population. So it's unclear now what the effects will be. Um, The advantage is that the bill would provide federal matching match funding for the states to administer the program. So this would be over and above the premium payments that the state's collecting currently. 
Um, it did also suggest that, that there would be an increase in primary care provider payments um, in the Medicaid program nationwide. So not just for this segment of new enrollees, but just nationwide. Uh, and uh, we'll talk more about provider payments, but there is a concern with expanding. There are not a, a lot of providers that want to see additional enrollees getting paid only reimbursed by the Medicaid rates. There's an issue with that. Um, so right now we're talking about a federal approach of of doing this, but it should be noticed that there's some of action right now at the state level. So at last count, I think there were about nine states that are proposing a Medicaid buy-in at the state level. So you're, um, you know, some states are not going to sit on their hands while they're waiting for the federal government to jump in and try to fix this. They're going ahead and trying to fix it at their level. If you're interested in this topic, I'll say researchers at Manat, Phelps and Phillips and the State Health and Value Strategy Center, which is at Princeton, they have provided an in-depth analysis to states that are considering a Medicaid buying approach. It's really a very interesting analysis and, and, and provides a lot of advice for states. They also have the most comprehensive tracker of state action on this issue. Um, so it's very interesting if you're interested in this issue to, to dig into that data. But one of the key issues to be resolved in any of these discussions around single payer and certainly with this as well is, again, as I mentioned earlier, provider payments. Um, provider Medicaid payments are lower than Medicare rate, uh, rates. Um, so you're going to see concern with a push of expansion of any of that. Um, there were some other proposals that were out there that looked at giving a lump sum to providers based on the population that they serve. Again, this could all vary by state. And I think what's interesting from the researchers um, that I just mentioned is they looked at it on a state-by-state -state basis and made suggestions for how to tackle that issue state-by-state. Um, -state. So we'll look more into um, state approaches on our next podcast when we look at what some of the states are doing as in their approach for a single-payer system and um, look into to the considerations that they're giving as well. Right. So of the four segments that we're talking about today, this Medicaid buy-in probably has the most state involvement. Right. And um, you mentioned some issues there with provider payments that will be kind of a common theme throughout. But let's move to the second level, so to speak, which would be a Medicare for more options or a Medicare buy-in. Yes. So we went from, if you think of, of payment systems on a continuum, you've got Medicaid on the lower end, and that's to uh, for coverages of those that are their, whose incomes are lower, you've got Medicare on the other end that are is really covering individuals whose ages are older. Um, so the Medi Medicaid buy-in is approaching it from one end of the spectrum. Medicare buy-in is approaching from the other end, and it's doing so because it's really popular in polling. Um, Medicare buy-in approaches are among the most popular of the Democratic proposals, according to a recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll. Seventy-seven percent strongly favored or somewhat favored a Medicare buy-in option starting at age 50. So right now, Medicare is, starts at age 65, and only 18% of those polled opposed it. So that's a pretty strong favorability rating. One of those proposals is called Medicare at 50 Act, and it was introduced by Senator Stabenow. Um, and again, it would let Americans age 50 years and older buy a privately administered Medicare plan through the exchange. So think of the Medicare Advantage plans that are offered currently and that are really um, offered through a private insurance um, uh, placement. So uh, enrollees would be able to use the ACA tax credits and the cost-sharing subsidies, and they could use them either to buy this Medicare option or um, obviously still in the, in the individual market. Um, what I have seen on some 
it was really through some uh, WebExes that I saw and some other strategy writings that were from those that are interested in really getting a nationalized plan. They saw this as one step towards getting there. Let's bring in a large proportion of the pre-Medicare age population and then gradually go down that age ladder until we have everybody. Right. So, so this idea of this could potentially be a slippery slope towards a full single-payer system, Medicare for all, that we'll talk about in just a minute. But it still has some popularity here. Right. Um, so definitely worth discussing. What's the problem in your mind or the challenges in your mind with offering more people Medicare? Well, I think part of the problem is you, you look at Medicare and people say that it has such a popular polling. Um, they think of Medicare as being the panacea, but it's really there are some real challenges with the Medicare system currently. Mm -hmm. um, for one, as we mentioned, Medicare payment rates are substantially lower than private insurance rates. They do not cover the cost of care. So for every dollar hospital spent to treat Medicare patients in 2007, they only received 87 cents in reimbursement. So there's a gap. Hospitals are, are generally for-profit. They're not going to just eat that gap. So when they're balancing their books, they're going to look to another source for funding, which right now is the private insurance market. The problem is, is um, as they obviously, as they expand Medicare, then that means more of the individuals would be covered by Medicare. And therefore, you're going to have more of that gap being pushed to the private insurers. When you have more of that being pushed to the private insurance, you're going to see an increase in premium rates. You're going to have more individuals now having to look elsewhere because those premium rates are increasing. So now they're turning to a public option. So it's kind of circular um, and uh, certainly destabilizing to the market. Also, if you think of if you have more people going to Medicare, there's going to be more expense that we're, the federal government's going to have to pick up. Right. So there's over 60 million people in that age band of 50 to 64. Right now, Medicare's payment rate per enrollee is roughly 11500 if you do the math. That would require an additional annual cost of $690 billion. So where's that funding going to come from? Right. I mean, we're, I think we're aware that Medicare is already a little bit underfunded, right? Yes. So if you look at the latest projections from the 2018 trustees report, that's the Medicare Hospital Insurance Part A Trust Fund. They say that the, it's projected to be depleted in 2026. And if you just look back just to the 2017 report, this is three years earlier than was projected in the 2017 report. So I, I'm concerned that when the 19 report comes out, it's going to move up even closer. Right. Um, Medicare Part A is financed primarily through payroll taxes. Part B and D are funded primarily through general revenue, which means your, you know, your, your income tax. So if we are having to add $690 billion on to um, the federal government, it's got to come from somewhere, and that's where it's going to come from. Right. And as you mentioned earlier, even if it were fully funded, there's still waste there. There's still fraud, waste, and abuse. Right. They, they say that one-third of Medicare dollars are considered fraud, waste, or abuse. So um, that's not uh, a lot of incentive to try to drive um, – you know, more healthcare that direction. Right. So some big challenges there for the second segment there, which is Medicare for more or Medicare buy-in. Um, so those are the first two steps towards the most extreme version of a single payer, which is we're going to call Medicare for all. Uh, but there's actually one more option before that most extreme. This is the third option. Um, tell us a little bit about that one, Suzanne. Well, the third option. So again, we've expanded now from Medicaid. We've ex expanded in terms of income levels. Now we've expanded Medicare in terms of, you know, going lower in age. Um, this next one is just offering a public option to anyone um, on the exchange. So 
It is one example is called Medicare X Choice Act, and it allows for individuals to voluntarily enroll in a public plan on health exchange. So it would be riding right alongside the the private insurance. It's broader than Medicare buy-in. Again, that's limited to certain age groups. This is not limited to any age group. The latest version of the bill would expand access to tax credits. So it would go above the 400% of federal poverty line threshold that's there currently. It would allow for those tax credits to be used with the Medicare Plan X or or the private insurance plan. Um, And it would also reimburse providers at the Medicare rates. So we mentioned some of the concern with that earlier. There was an actual study done by the American Hospital Association, which is obviously they have an interest in this topic. Um, They looked at the particular proposal called Medicare X Choice, and they found the following. They said, number one, it's going to lead to a significant disruption to the employer-sponsored insurance market, which provides coverage, as we mentioned earlier, to 150 million Americans. Right there, you want to say, why are we disrupting a significant part of the market that's working well and people are satisfied with in order to provide coverage for less than 10% of individuals? Secondly, we lead to a cut of nearly $800 billion for hospital-based services over a 10-year period. Um, and that's while utilization will grow as a result of the increased coverage. Third, the impact, it will impact the ability of providers, many of which are already absorbing more than $200 billion in Medicare cuts, to continue to care for patients under the new public plan. It will stifle hospitals' ability to keep pace with new life-sustaining advances in medicine, to continue to invest in new payment and delivery models, and to manage risks rapidly escalating drug prices. And then finally, continue to put pressure on other commercial plan rates, which we just mentioned, further undermining coverage for Americans not on Medicare, as well as other unintended consequences. That study really seems to wrap up all of the problems that we see with single-payer systems and its effect on the employer-sponsored market, on hospitals, on innovation, and on um, providers generally. Right. The third option there feels like it wouldn't be as disruptive when you first look at it because it's building off the exchange model that's there, the premium tax credits, and expanding kind of on the the individual uh, structure that's already in place through the ACA. But as you pointed out, these significant challenges to that um, do seem like it would be pretty disruptive overall. So I think that's why it falls in the third segment there as being more disruptive than either Medicaid buy-in or Medicare buy-in. Right. The end result is it could be much more disruptive to what we have now. So let's go on to segment four. We're calling this the granddaddy of them all. This is a true single payer or Medicare for all program. Some have called this uh, the Bernie Sanders plan, right? Right. That is, that's correct. Um, and this, this is interesting because if you look at the polling, one was done by Reuters uh, recently, and it said that even Democratic voters who support Medicare for all um, their support collapses when it shows that the Medicare for all would raise taxes or or wouldn't deliver the same quality of care. So you really want when you see poll results, you want to dig into them and see if that information is provided. Are we just telling people they're going to get free health care coverage or are we letting them know that they are going to pay more in taxes and possibly have hard, uh, not as great access to care and and other issues? They may have to wait longer for that care. Um, and then when you combine that with the fact that a KFF poll, a Kaiser Family Foundation poll recently showed that a majority of Democrats, 51%, prefer that Congress focus on bolstering the ACA rather than on moving toward a single payer option, um, it shows you that overall it's going to be difficult to push a, a Medicare for all option across the line in any current administration. Um, 
what's also interesting, I think, is that when you look at the Medicare for all, it is truly a partisan issue. And some of these other options, you might see some bipartisan support. This nationalized plan, the, the Medicare for all, is really bifurcated. You're not going to find one Republican that supports it. What are we talking about? We're talking about a federally run healthcare system with an, one nationalized plan. So there's not a Medicare, there's no Medicare, no Medicaid, no VA, no employer-sponsored coverage. It is truly one system. Um, the financial stakes, if you can think of it, for the for the providers, for the drug manufacturers, and certainly for the taxpayers, are far more significant under this proposal than any of the other proposals. When you hear of those that are in favor of it, they say all U.S. residents would have the same coverage. It would be affordable at the point of service, and that's because there's no cost sharing. There's no out-of-pocket costs. In fact, there's no, not even any premiums. And so what does that do for uh, the healthcare system? It's really going to drive up healthcare utilization. Mm -hmm. So we talk about um, healthcare costs being contained, which we'll talk about in a second. The problem is that healthcare utilization will increase. So overall healthcare spending will undoubtedly increase. Um, they do talk about, uh, they, they think that there's an advantage in having one healthcare payment system. So it would certainly be administered more efficiently. I don't know if that's true. I question it when I look at systems like the Medicare system or the VA system. I don't see those as, as uh, you know, evidence of efficiency. So I question whether um, going, allowing the federal government to be uh, the one running the show means that it's nat naturally going to be more efficient. Um, and again, we talked about the concern with the unintended consequences of provider cuts. If we implement something where the Medicare rates are going across all providers, there's going to be a significant, I've heard as much as 40% drop in provider payments. You're certainly going, going to see attrition in uh, the pr provider community with fewer uh, doctors uh, out there and, and more people wanting to access care. There's going to be longer wait times, um, certainly more difficulty in accessing care altogether. We've also discussed the problems with concern or concern around innovation. We've talked about that on prior podcasts. The American Hospital Association um, also showed that in their research, they had concerns about innovation. Um, innovation with medical devices, medical research in general, certainly with pharmaceuticals. So the question, as we talked about, is there's increased healthcare spending, potentially some cost containment strategies if they cap provider rates. Um, there's a question of whether the cost containment strategies can can provide enough savings to overcome the additional spending that will take place with increased utilization. Um, and so overall, you can expect a significant funding issue. Um, they've said that the Bernie Sanders plan would be $32.6 trillion. They have not said where that funding will come from. You can imagine it's absolutely going to come from increased taxes. So, Right. I think we covered this on a prior podcast. To get even somewhat close to that, we would have to double both income and business taxes as they currently are now. So, Suzanne, this has been a real education for all of us on the terminology when we're talking about the different options and uh proposals that are being put forth in this uh, single-payer debate. What do you think this will look like in 2020? Well, obviously, if President uh, Donald Trump, the Republicans triumph, you can expect them to return to some version of repeal and replace legislation, um, similar to the one that failed in 2017. Mm -hmm. If the Democrats pull it off, then you can be certain that some form of single-payer will be passed. Uh, certainly, if they have both the Senate and the House and the White House or all of the above, you can expect what form of that. I don't know. There does seem to be a middle ground that most are 
um, at least the polling is uh, supporting. Um, so I, I don't imagine that it would be pushed to a nationalized healthcare system, but I also two years ago wouldn't have imagined it to be as, as much of the discussion that it is today. Right. So we'll just have to wait and see on that. In the meantime, though, this is great in helping paint the full picture of what each of these uh, options entails. So thank you for doing that. And uh, we'll continue on our single pair discussion in our next podcast. But for now, as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank Thanks. you for joining. Thank you. Thank you.